I have the privilege of introducing Dr. Jim, Tim Johansson this week for our fall focus. This, week, this year's fall focus is on family. Dr. Tim Johansson is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and Pediatric Residency Program in Tucson. He focuses the majority of his time teaching the next generation of pediatricians about child development, behavior, and parenting, and heads behavioral clinic at the University of Arizona. He practiced general pediatrics in Minnesota for 25 years and taught pediatric residents at, and medical students from the University of Minnesota before taking his faculty position in Tucson in 2016. His research involves the connections between traumatic childhood experiences and parenting. He and his wife Susan have three grown children, all of whom graduated from Southwest, and they welcome their first granddaughter into the world this past summer. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tim Johansson. Well, thank you very much. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Awesome, great. Um, and, and, and thank you, Mr. Mealy, for that kind introduction. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've provided each one of us a family. In fact, you created family, and you've always intended for family to be one of the most important parts of life. Many of us here are blessed with amazing families that support and edify us. Yet some of us are in families that have struggles, struggles that affect us in ways that make us stressed or angry or even hopeless. Lord, I pray that the story of my family, which I share today, would bring hope and gratitude and also prompt forgiveness if needed. Please bless each and every family represented in this auditorium in the ways they need you. Amen. I sat with him and just looked. It was a surreal moment, my father on his deathbed. He had been through a lot in his life and so had we. I counted four different tubes inserted in different parts of his body and a large breathing mask covered his mouth and nose assisting him to breathe. He was able to talk but only in three word bursts, then a few gasping breaths and then three more words. I looked at the bottom of the bed and his right leg was just a stump from the initial amputation six months before and nothing had gone right since that time. My dad was able to speak to me but his words were strained and it was difficult to understand unless I got real close to his face. And I remember looking into his eyes, they were tearing up unsettled in a way that says, I have no control what is happening. But there was also tenderness and assurance and love in his eyes, almost a look of appreciation. My stepmother was on the other side of the bed, tissues in hand, holding back a constant flood of tears. They had married 17 years earlier, several years after my, mo my own mother had died. They had actually enjoyed a really wonderful marriage, the second for both of them. And the doctor who was in had just recommended yet another surgery to remove most of his right leg this time. It would be the third amputation in six months, each one more aggressive than the last. My dad had been through a lot in his life and so had we. As I sat with him in that hospital room, memories of my childhood flooded into my mind. When I was six years old, I recall the first of many fights between my mom and dad. We had left a family wedding late at night and after the wedding reception and dance, 
and I held my sister's hand as we walked just behind my parents from the reception hall. And I remember they were screaming at each other and mom was demanding the keys to the car. Dad was refusing to give them up and mom said we would not get in the car if he drove. He was almost too drunk to walk, let alone drive. So there we all were, our happy family walking down the street at night. What a scene that was. My childhood was pretty much filled with variations on that night. I loved my parents, I just wanted them to get along. But night after night, I never knew which dad would come home from work. And he seemed fine to us kids until he made it through his first six pack of beer and half a bottle of brandy. And then the fireworks would start. He was mad at my mom, he was mad at us kids, he was mad at the world, probably mad at himself for spending another night drunk. My sister and I would sit at the top of the stairs late at night and listen. Listen to the yelling and the slaps and the screaming. We always tried to catch my dad before the booze hit him because he was actually a lot of fun when he was sober. He taught me how to pitch baseball when I was in Little League. He caught hundreds of my pitches out in our street. He was a pitcher himself and a basketball player and a football player and he even taught me to punt a football and play golf. And as I sat with him in that hospital room, I remem remembered when I was 16 years old and my dad was yet in another treatment program for his alcoholism. There it came out during a family counseling session that he and his secretary at work had a baby born six months before me. Nothing like finding out you have a half-sister when you're 16. That really ticked me off. But I also remember my dad had a lot of good qualities. He was an honest man, he paid his taxes without too much complaint and always told me to finish any job that I started and to never be a quitter. My dad was smart, really smart. He started out as a bench chemist and worked himself up to vice president of a large corporation. He was a leader and well-respected at work outside our home. He was the epitome of success. There were a lot of good things about my dad, but inside our home, well, my dad had his dark side, a dark side that his own family upbringing had instilled into his character. And as I sat there, I thought about how all of us have a dark side. Then I tried to think way back and remember my own mom. Although she had died a long time before and and the memories of her had faded over the decades, I thought about the final years of her life. She's gone, your mother's gone, my wife had said to me on a hot, humid June afternoon. I asked, where did she go? My first memory of mom was her reading Winnie the Pooh to my older sister and me. We would walk home from elementary school to have lunch. She pre prepared lunch every day. So it was easy to get there and get back to school for the afternoon. So our lunch times were filled with Christopher Robin, Weasels and Sneasels, Eeyore, Tigger and Roo, and she made the best lunches for me and my sister. PBJs and mac and cheese and deli sandwiches and Pringles, homemade cookies and pies. Her bread was from scratch and the dinner rolls she made were soft and buttery. Oh, were they good. And every day as a kid, on my way out the door, my mom would say to me, Tim, remember to be nice to everyone. She was a great cook and a talented seamstress, but not much of an athlete. 
And what I came to discover growing up was that her worth was in the identity she had as a wife and a mother. And her marriage to my dad was the way for her to escape the humble and impoverished childhood she had experienced. She grew up outside a tiny little home in northern Minnesota and her family used an outhouse because they had no plumbing for a toilet. And at the age of 18, she married my dad right out of high school. 18 was probably too young for both of them. But growing up as a young child, my mom seemed pretty normal to me, although I never understood why she put up with my dad's drinking until I found out that she had been a closet alcoholic much of my childhood. As they say, if you can't beat him, join him. And I recall how anxious she always seemed to be, and this showed up in so many different ways, like overeating and overspending and overcontrolling. Yes, even overdrinking. She had many friends in the neighborhood and at church. Yeah, my mom took us to church. She was involved in the decoration committee and small groups and had a faith life. And as a child, I witnessed her prayer life. She did Bible studies and I believe deep in my heart that she was saved. But as I sat with my dad in that hospital room, I remembered how my mom spent most of her energy protecting the outward appearance of our family and she was very good at that. It actually made me mad to think that most everyone thought our family was so perfect. They had no clue, as me and my sister were indoctrinated to keep the family secret a secret. But the chemical dependency took its toll on my mom and depression started consuming her life. She was eventually diagnosed with major depression, with bipolar disorder and severe anxiety. And in the, in the last few years of her life, she was involved in car accidents where alcohol was involved. And eventually she just shut down. She stayed home and rarely went outside to do simple errands. She refused counseling, refused to take her medications and refused life. So on that hot and humid June afternoon, I said to my wife, well, where did she go? And my wife said, no. Your mother's gone. She died this afternoon. I remember my very first thought was this. I bet she killed herself. But then my wife said she had died in her sleep. Her second daughter had just been born a month earlier. My mom never got to meet her because she never made herself available. My mom never got to meet her little brother who was born three years ago or three years later and ne never got to see her three grandchildren go to kindergarten, graduate from high school or college. And she never got to see her great-granddaughter who was born two months ago. Two weeks later, my suspicion of su suicide was confirmed when the autopsy report came in. There were remnants of over 200 antidepressant pills in her stomach. She had put a roast beef in the oven that afternoon and said to my grandmother that she was gonna go lay down for a little nap. Early the next morning, I drove four hours to the hospital where her body was. I needed to see her. I needed to touch her hands and, and believe that she was truly gone. And in the morgue, my mom's body lay on a cold metal table with a white body bag unzipped, revealing the upper half of her body still in the pajamas she wore for her nap. Her hands were cold and blue and her face pale and ruddy. Her eyes were closed, her lips barely open no rise or fall to her chest. And I stood by that table and cried. 
And I told her that I was so sorry that she had never gotten the help in her life that she needed. And I asked her forgiveness for the ways I had not helped, ways that might have resulted in a different outcome. I drove back to our home in Minneapolis and started planning her funeral the next Saturday. And the service was gonna be very difficult because of the tensions between my dad and our family members. And we didn't know how he might even show up for the funeral. But the thing about that funeral day I remember was when the soloist sang my mom's favorite hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. I know she would have loved it. After the funeral, we drove back home to Minneapolis and the next morning on the way to church with my wife and two daughters, I decided to turn on some music of a local Christian radio station. The moment I pushed the radio button, Fairest Lord Jesus started to play and I cried. And we arrived in the church parking lot and I entered through the front doors with my wife and daughters and the previous service was just ending and the recessional hymn was just starting as we walked in. It was Ferris Lord Jesus. And that time after my mom's suicide, through many people, circumstances and moments, it was clear that God was revealing something about her, something about me, and something about my future. Now after my mom died, my sisters essentially disowned my dad, blaming mom's mental illness and early death on his alcoholism. They never forgave him. They never really spoke to him again. And I could certainly understand why they felt that way. I was mad too. But something inside of me just wanted to understand what went wrong in my dad's life that led him to be who he was. So I reluctantly decided to stay in touch, but from a distance. After all, he was family. And as I sat with him in that hospital room, I remember the, the night he called me, about a year after mom killed herself, and she, he called me that night pretty drunk, asking if we could meet and talk about something. And you know what he said to me? Tim, you have something that I want. So I agreed to meet him the next morning, but told him I wouldn't talk to him if he showed up inebriated. Well, he was sober the next morning when we met, and this meeting started something that I can truly say I'm thankful for to this day because over the next three months, my dad became receptive to conversations about the role of God in my life and ultimately the role of God in his life. I never thought my dad would ever consider accepting Jesus into his heart. After all, he was the man who sarcastically scoffed at Billy Graham crusades and made fun of the Pope during the Christmas Eve televised services. But nothing is impossible with God because on one beautiful spring day in Minneapolis, after my dad had lost everything, his job, his career, his daughters, his wife, his health, and his dignity, my dad was delivered. I got to witness the supernatural conversion of my dad, an experience filled with spiritual warfare and a battle for a soul that still makes the hair on my back of my neck stand up. But when it was over, it was quiet, totally quiet, and tears of joy streamed down his face. And there was a look of peace in his eyes that I'd never seen. And this was the beginning of the rebuilding of our broken relationship. As I looked at him in the hospital bed, I remembered that our, recon our reconciliation took years to totally unfold and process. The primary road for me to understand my dad was to have him tell me everything about his childhood, about his family, what his father was like, 
how his parents' relationship played out and any specific experiences that had impacted him. I just wanted to know this man, my dad. When I was younger, I was just mad at my parents, mad at their dysfunctional relationship, mad at his alcoholism, mad at her depression. I was not interested in understanding how each of their childhoods might have influenced their adult lives. I never took the time because I wasn't there yet. But what I found out about my dad and his family as we both worked towards reconciliation changed how I saw him. You see, his father, his uncles, his grandfathers and older brother were all alcoholics. His father, my grandfather, beat him as a young child. Most of the friends and neighbors they lived in the small town were heavy drinkers. He had witnessed many marriages break up because of adultery. It was common on a weekend to have drunk neighbors passed out in their front yard on Sunday morning. And the one experience that I could tell hurt my dad the most was when he went off to serve in the Korean War and his own father showed up at the train station, shook his hand and just said, good luck and turned and walked away. Our reconciliation together, my dad and I, revealed to me two important life truths. First, many times people are the way they are because of what has happened to them, not because something is wrong with them. And second, restoring a broken relationship takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. Effort in understanding the other person and their life experiences, listening to their perspective, and time to trust and have authentic connection and to heal. As I sat with him in his hospital bed, I remembered how lucky I was. Lucky because between the ages of 14 and 22, three key men entered into my life. And even though my dad was incapable of being what I needed in a father due to his chemical dependency and his own upbringing, these other men filled in. The first was my best friend's dad. Clancy was patient and kind. He was the kind of dad I wanted, full of care and respect and wisdom. And I watched him, oh, I watched him so closely because I wanted to figure out how this dad thing is supposed to work. And at times, I was actually envious of my best friend for having a dad like him. I loved spending time at their home, it was safe. His friend's dad gave me a sense of security and calm, treating me like one of his own sons. He believed in me, and I knew he couldn't be my dad, but I could sure learn from him. I figured someday I might get married and we would wanna have kids of our own, and I just wanted to be able to do this dad thing right and different. The second man was my high school choir teacher, Mr. Mix. He and his wife modeled for me an incredibly loving marriage relationship. When they were together, they actually held hands and looked at each other's eyes with love and caring. They were always laughing together, and this I never saw in my own home. So I watched him and his wife very closely because I wanted to figure out how this husband thing is supposed to happen. I love being around them at concerts or on choir trips, and since they, I had good friends who were their kids, I spent time at their house and watched. I just watched. My choir teacher believed in me, and I just wanted to be able to do the husband thing right someday. The third man was my doctor. He became our family's doctor when I was 14. 
And this man was the most compassionate and caring person I had ever met in my life. At six foot eight inches tall, this gentle giant took the time to find out what I was going through, what our family was going through, and through his counsel and direction, I learned about the family disease of alcoholism. I joined Alateen and started going to counselor. My doctor encouraged my parents to get the help too, but they weren't able to take that step. But he persisted with me, saying, Tim, you can only account for your own journey. It's not up to you to save your family. And through his encouragement, I got the critical help at the critical time in my life that I needed. He believed in me. And over the subsequent years, he wrote recommendations for me as I applied to college, for academic scholarships, and ultimately to be accepted into medical school. I got to follow in his footsteps. I watched him closely because I wanted to be able to do this compassion thing right. So there I sat with my dad, all these swirling memories, and just looked into his eyes, listened to his labored breathing, and squeezed his hand. And he just looked into my eyes and squeezed my hand. We didn't have to say anything to each other, and I thought, how lucky am I to have this man as my dad? Even though I had hated him growing up, I still desperately wanted to love him. And even though he was incapable of loving me the way I needed it, at least now in the last half of his life and now at the end of his life, I did. You see, my dad was and is a wonderful part of my story. Not an easy story, but it's my story. And his shortcomings became a part of my life and his flaws molded me and his faults influenced me for good. All these things could have so easily resulted in me going a different direction when I was your age. But if I'm going to be honest, my journey and direction in life are not because of anything I have done. Everything you go through, the good, the bad, the joy-filled, the traumatic, all of these things mold you into who you are and who you become and who you don't become. But along the way, what I realized is we don't mold ourselves. There's a much bigger than ourselves force at work. I know deep in my core that God is the one who gave me my family for a reason, and I'm so thankful. My parents did the best job they could with all of their own baggage and hurt from their families of origin. God brought three extraordinary men into my life who became my surrogate dads, teaching me about being a father, a husband, and a man of compassion. God has brought my incredible wife of over 33 years into my life, a woman to whom I am devoted and accountable. God has blessed us with three amazing children for whom I've tried to be the best dad I possibly could. God has allowed me to care for kids and hurting families for over 35 years. And now he's allowing me to research the effects of traumatic childhoods on parenting and to speak across the country to parents and teachers and physicians and counselors on how to care for kid, kids in positive ways. It's actually allowed me to write a book about parenting. Ha! Isn't that a joke? How ironic. It was a surreal moment, my father on his deathbed. He'd been through a lot and so had we. His eyes and his words told me that it was time, his time, time to let go. He knew where he was going. And there I was, the only one of his children who was present with him that day, that special day. 
And I remember saying to him, Dad, it's okay to stop. And you know what he said? Tim, I just need to know that you will always take care of your stepmother. And I said, I will, Dad, I love you. And he said, I love you too, kid. And those are the last words he spoke. I tell you the story because each of our childhood journeys tends to define our direction. Each of us has a life story that's filled with joy and pain and victories and defeats and successes and failures. And my story is just a story. It's an individual catalog of memories that I recall, experiences that ended up molding me and determining my path in life. So our stories are not meant to be a competition or a pity party. Stories are not meant to be about who's had a harder road and who's had an easier road. Our stories are just our stories. And if you have a story that isn't difficult or hard, God bless you. That's wonderful, and I'm so happy for you. So what do we do with family? Family is where God reveals himself. Oop. Oop. Here we go. Perfect. Family is where God reveals himself. Personal stories about how God makes himself known to us, either through challenge or blessing in families, and then how he uses those experiences to transform us, is a miracle. I want you to all know that first, there's no such thing as a perfect family, so if you think your family's perfect, it's not. Maybe you feel like they are, but no matter how hard people in a family strive to be perfect, a perfect family is simply not attainable. You see, families are made up of people, imperfect people, and imperfect people make mistakes and say things that are hurtful or disappointing or grow apart and have seasons that are not very loving towards each other. Families are filled with a combination of everything under the sun, and they're a complicated union of imperfect people who are all going through their journeys in different ways. So a perfect family is simply a perfect myth. But you are not alone on your journey either. God promises that he will always be present, and this is true when life is going well and when life feels like it's becoming derailed. I love the story of Exodus, you know, when God brings his people out of Egypt. And I resonate with this story because it reminds me of how God was involved in my life from my early childhood before I ever became a believer. He was giving me glimpses of his presence and softening my heart. In Exodus, God tells Moses the following, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own you will know that I am the Lord your God and I will bring you to the land I promised you and I will give it to you. I had a strong sense at a young age that God was real and he cared about me and my family and he would ultimately redeem my life and protect me from repeating the generational sin that I was witnessing growing up. And similar to the Exodus story, God showed up in my life and brought me out of my difficulties, redeemed me and took me as his own when you, or if you, are going through difficult times, how you survive and thrive may take years to unfold. For most, it will be a very long process. Yet as we walk with him, 
trusting that in all things he works for our good, we can be patient and deeply trust that he will use our situation for good in our lives. Know that the God who is behind you is bigger than the Pharaoh in front of you. Now we all have our own ideas about how family should be, but when those expectations fall short, we can become embarrassed or ashamed or lonely, can't we? Sometimes we can isolate ourselves from others because we are ashamed. That was how it was for me growing up. I never had friends over to my house. Even the thought of my friends seeing my dad inebriated or witnessing a fight was too embarrassing to even consider. I was terrified someone might find out. I strived to be anywhere but home. I did everything I could to avoid having anyone know the truth. When families struggle, we tend to put ourselves under a magnifying glass as well. We can start to wonder if it's our fault somehow, or we can start to feel sorry for ourselves, and neither of these responses to family stress is particularly healthy. When your family is an, is a, if your family is an easy family, where things are good and positive, or a family where there exists stress and tension and unrest, I ask you to look at your parents through a lens of empathy. You may, under, may not understand the motives that influence how they parent you, or their own personal histories that affect how they make decisions for you or your family. Sometimes parents don't even understand their motives for why they do what they do. And I'm speaking from personal experience. So if you're struggling with your relationship with your mom or your dad, hopefully there will be a time and place for you to understand each other better and hear about their stories which have molded them. But the bottom line is we may not know the why of tragedy within our family, yet the truth about disappointments is that they matter to God and he reveals himself through them and he redeems them. Just remember you are not alone. Second, build on all the good things in your family. Take all the very best things from your family experience and build on them into your life and into your future. If you've been blessed with a family who's loving, supportive, and has reasonable and fitting expectations of you, work toward taking all those good things about your family and build them into your life. If your dad is a great dad, take that and internalize it. It's a blessing. Bring that with you as you enter adulthood and perhaps have children of your own. Commit to use those positive experiences to be the best dad to your children. If you have an amazing mom, take that experience and internalize it. That is a blessing as well. Bring it into your adult years, especially when kids come into the picture. If your parents have a loving relationship that exemplifies mutual respect and sacrifice for others, and long-term commitment to each other, take that and internalize it. That is a blessing to you. Strive to ultimately be in a relationship that embodies the same dedication. In all these ways, I think it's important to be grateful for family when things are running well. It's tempting to take good family for granted, and we must look for ways that we can use and reach others with our blessings. Ask yourself, how will the fact of stability in my life be used for the good of others? Maybe you and your family are to be part of someone else's journey. Perhaps a relative who has been excluded, a neighbor who has challenges. I would suspect there are students in this auditorium who are experiencing loneliness or exclusion. 
Perhaps you know a classmate in this situation, but so far have avoided becoming an advocate for them. Maybe you're a friend to someone who is struggling because of their own family situation. And maybe they need an extra adult in their life, and maybe your mom or your dad is that person that they might need. Are you willing to share them? Growing up with stability is a tremendous blessing. But I have to be honest with you here, because I've seen a lot of people who've come out of some wonderful families waste their blessings. Some use a fortunate story or family blessing to be judging of others, better than others. Sometimes it's just more comfortable to ignore the hurt and strife that exists around us and just be safe and comfortable in our little community and isolate ourselves with people just like us. So how are you gonna live out your fortunate story and allow God to change the world through you? Or will your blessings make you privileged, blind to the lonely and oblivious to the hurting? I once heard a sermon on the word privilege. And honestly, I hate that word. To be truthful, I'm, because I'm a white male, a physician, and over 55, many assume I have lived a privileged life. They assume that I had my college and medical school handed to me, which is not true. They assume I had it easy growing up, which is not true. Those who assume I'm privileged don't know me and they don't know my story. Yet what this pastor said in her sermon was this. Privilege is the luxury of not having to see or do anything about the injustice around you. Think about that. This takes the current definition of privilege and flips it upside down. The luxury of not having to see or do anything about the justice, injustice around you. I will tell you my current position at the University of Arizona is to train the next generation of baby doctors. It's a joy and an honor, and I take it very seriously. And I work with an amazing group of young people between the ages of 22 and 32. And I have nothing but optimism for how they're gonna take care of the next generations of children in this country. But the population I take care of is very difficult, probably very different than this room. In the inner city of Tucson, 85% of my patients live in poverty. Many are refugees from 48 different countries. And the parents, many of them live in fear because of their immigration status. Some of my patients are homeless. Some have experienced tremendous trauma already in their lives as children. Many don't know English. Most use public transportation and get food stamps. A lot of their problems weren't ever their fault, and some of them are. But the injustice is physically and emotionally palpable right in front of us, my residents and me, as we care for them. We cannot ignore it. We don't have that luxury. And I am so thankful for that. If you've been blessed with this solid family that I've mentioned, ask yourself, will I live a life of privilege and protection or will I live life from a place of gratitude for that and give freely to others who have needs? I think it's really important for us to learn from our adversities in our family. I want you to take all the difficult parts of your family that you've experienced and learn from them. Some of you might be growing up in families like my family, 
where things were tough and relationships were strained and God was not at least overtly part of the family dynamic. Perhaps your parents are not together because they've been divorced or separated. Maybe you feel the same way I did, actually disliking my parents and wishing I had been in a different family. But look to your story of adversity and learn from it. Learn about the experiences you've had or are having and strive to make your journey different than that. If you've been blessed with that difficult family, and I consider myself incredibly blessed, ask yourself about this fact of your, how this fact of your life will be used to thrive and help others. Perhaps certain experiences that you've had growing up will be used to prevent others from going through similar pain. For example, my story includes the suicide of my mom. That was the one, of the, one of the most painful periods of life for me. And yet, over the past 30 decades, I have related that specific experience to hundreds of my patients who are contemplating suicide or have had a family member take their own life. And I've been able to pray for and with those patients that they would seek the help they need to move past their thoughts of killing themselves. And like me, maybe what has happened to you will become how you help the brokenness in the people you meet. So be grateful for your difficult family because through them, God can mold you. One of my absolutely favorite patients of all time, I'll call him Tommy, has an amazing story of family hardship and forgiveness and calling in life. Tommy was 14 when I first met him eight years ago and he was referred for aggressive behaviors fighting at school, pulling a knife on a person, getting kicked out of school and suspended multiple times and spending time in juvenile detention. He had recently moved from out of state about six months before then, and upon entering the exam room, I was expecting to find a tattooed punk refusing to speak. But Tommy was neatly dressed, had well-combed hair, stood and shook my hand and introduced himself. <laughs> I said, this kid doesn't look like a troublemaker. So I, it was time to start unpacking his story. You see, Tommy had never met his biological dad. His fa in fact, his mom told me that she wasn't sure who his dad was because she had been in so many relationships. Tommy was her first child and had two little stepsisters, four and six years younger than him with her boyfriend, quote, stepfather. He was an alcoholic and abused Tommy's mother physically and emotionally, and Tommy witnessed the domestic violence in their home. He also physically and emotionally abused Tommy, slapped him around, yelled profanities at him, especially if Tommy tried to protect his mother. And when Tommy was nine, his stepdad just took his two younger sisters and moved away, sight unseen. And Tommy, in those previous five years, had never been given the opportunity to speak with his sisters. Shortly after that, Tommy's mom started on her own journey of alcoholism and opiate addiction, and her chemical dependency destroyed any semblance of responsibility as a parent, so the authorities came in, moved him to foster care and then to his grandmother's care. His mom, with 25 chemical dependency treatment programs under her belt in the previous four years when I first met him, had intermittent involvement in Tommy's life. When she was sober and clean, he would move in with her. Things seemed like maybe, just maybe, she would become a consistent and positive force in her life, but many times over, she relapsed, and Tommy would again experience the disappointment and loss he'd grown up with. He'd go back to his grandmother's place 
And fortunately for Tommy, his grandmother was an incredibly solid person. She essentially raised him, became his parent figure, really the only stable influence he had ever had. His grandmother stressed the importance of hard work, overcoming hardship, and had expectations and goals for him. At my first clinic visit with him, I asked Tommy why he'd been kicked out of school. And he replied that he felt compelled to take out any and all bullies at school, and he was a good fighter. I asked Tommy what happened with the knife incident, and he told me about the night one of his mom's boyfriends was beating her up, so he called the police and then held the man at knife point until they arrived. He was 12. It was about that time that Tommy's grandmother was diagnosed with cancer, and he watched an 18-month journey through chemo and radiation where he saw the progressive deterioration of his grandmother, and she passed away only six months before I first met him. Now again, he was living with his mother, who was just two months sober. They were in a new city. Tommy was in a new school. And the most important person in his life had died, and he was 13. So what happened to Tommy is an amazing work of God. He was connected with an exceptional therapist who helped him overcome his childhood trauma and become a role model for him. His mother entered a faith-based chemical dependency program and remains sober to this day. Tommy and his mom started attending a local church, giving him access to a new core group of friends who connected with him at school and encouraged him to play basketball, which he did, and his basketball coach became a very important mentor and role model for him. He also excelled academically, he's a smart kid, because as he would say to me, Grandma wants me to do well in school. She made the difference in his life. He had a combination of hardship and blessing in his family. And now he's graduated from high school and has joined the Marines with plans to go to college and become a child psychologist, focusing on helping children who are growing up in difficult families. His experience will become his calling. My last conversation with him last spring was about forgiveness. I asked him how forgiveness played out with his mother. He told me a quote by Louis Smedes, a famous Christian theologian who offered the following. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. It was one of the sweetest professional moments for me in my life because it was a young man I'd known for eight years who was now a young adult at the age of 22. He experienced great adversity in his life witnessed far too much injustice in his life, but he was a young man who had learned to forgive, be grateful, and to move on. I wanna offer a couple of thoughts on forgiveness because it was one of the most difficult things I had to do in my own family. I had to forgive my mom for refusing help in getting the assistance that she needed. I had to forgive her for committing suicide. I had to forgive my dad for his alcoholism, his infidelity, and the inability to be the kind of dad I needed growing up. I had to forgive my sisters for deciding to separate themselves from our family. And I even had to forgive myself for my part in my mom's suicide, a part which might have included not helping her when she needed it the most. Forgiveness is the beginning of healing in families. It includes not only forgiving others, but asking others to forgive you. 
What's interesting is science has observed a great cost to unforgiveness. It is often at the heart of stress that results from interpersonal offense. Unforgiveness brings constant tension to our souls that may increase levels of guilt and shame and regret, and these things in turn negatively impact our physical and mental health. Unforgiveness keeps us in that cage, a cage that we lock ourselves from the inside. And there is power to forgiveness, both in its application in our lives and its consequences in our relationships. Forgiveness releases us from hatred and revenge, and it's the only hope for restitution and reconciliation. I've had to remember, however, that forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. I don't forget anything about my childhood, but I've forgiven everyone who was involved. And even though um, that forgiveness has happened, I will for never forget what we went through, and that's okay with me. So to close, I just want you to be still for a moment here. I want you to just close your eyes, just for a moment right now, and think about your family. Consider each person that lives in your home, people in your family that you see every day. Is there one family member who you are not getting along with because they offended you? Are you holding on to any animosity for them? Would it be just too much work to forgive them? Now picture that family member who you feel wronged by face to face and imagine Jesus is standing right next to you with his arm on your shoulder. How would he tell you, how would he tell you to forgive them? What words would he ask you to use? In your mind, think about the words you would say and say those words to them now and forgive them in your heart. Is there someone in your family that you have wronged? Maybe you've been a real jerk to your siblings or have recurrently blown up at your parents over trivial things. Have you said something so hurtful you don't think you could ever take it back? Have you made decisions that your family or your parents or your grandparents would be shocked at? Imagine standing face to face with that family member who you have wronged and Jesus is next to you. Maybe they don't even know what you've done how might Jesus ask you to confess? In your mind, think about those words you would use and confess them in your heart to them. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for creating family. It is through family you reveal yourself to us, mold us into who you've created us to be. It is through family you bring great blessings. Help us learn to build on the good and to learn from the difficult in each one of our families. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage, www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.